Today's episode is titled, Mrs. Fields Never Imagined. Podcasting from Boise, Idaho. You're listening to The Cyber Chronicles with cybersecurity evangelist Nate Long. Having walked through the valley of the shadow of the internet for 21 years, Nate is using his expertise to make cybersecurity available to everyone. In our previous episode on privacy, we just barely touched on the role of cookies in tracking personal activity. Today, I'd like to delve a bit deeper. Let's first establish that from a technical perspective, cookies are not the only concern, as there are other pieces and parts that contribute to our problem. However, cookies are pretty universally recognized and they do create a more significant hole in our personal security than most people realize. So I'd like to focus in on making sure we understand how they work and what they can be leveraged for. You might be thinking, cookies? What's the big deal? Everyone knows about cookies. Yeah. Despite the risk of offending you here, I suspect most of us don't really know the half of it. Shall we talk? Do I have enough goodwill to burn until I make my case? I'm not just blowing smoke here. Cookies are such a big deal that Google has repeatedly taken action surrounding cookie utilization that have now forced them to pay $22.5 million in one settlement with the FTC, and more recently, a separate $170 million settlement. The first instance was intriguing because it was some of the first well-documented evidence that Google was more than willing to circumvent individuals' personal rights in the interest of their corporate goals. In an effort to ensure that they could track users' browsing habits, Google violated iOS users' privacy by intentionally bypassing the privacy controls built into and enabled by default in Apple's Safari web browser. Do you think Google would put millions of dollars at risk if cookies were insignificant? So what is a cookie? What does it do? What kinds are there? And, and what do they know about us? A cookie, in this case, is a tiny text file used to store user-specific data. They are created and used by websites. They store information like logging information, What's in your shopping cart? What language you prefer? What sites you visited? Where specifically you came from to this website? Your referrer URL? What you've purchased? What device you're using? Your location? How many times you've seen a specific ad? What links you click on? What you've searched for? And more. There are various kinds of cookies, including session cookies, which exist only in temporary memory and are deleted when you close the browser. Persistent cookies. These are written in permanent memory, and they persist until you delete them or they hit the expiration date. Some less than desirable cookies have an expiration date of 1231999. First party cookies are generated and used by the website you're actually visiting. Third party cookies belong to domains other than the one you're visiting. 
zombie cookies are automatically recreated after having been deleted. This is accomplished via a client-side script that stores the cookie's content in multiple different locations throughout your hard drive. Supercookies claim an origin of a top-level domain, like .com, for example, instead of a specific domain name, like Amazon.com. These are used exclusively by advertisers. Secure cookies can be transmitted only over an encrypted connection, HTTPS, making it less likely to be exposed to cookie theft via what's called eavesdropping. HTTP-only cookies can only be used via HTTP or HTTPS and are not available via API for JavaScript, for example. This restriction eliminates the threat of cookie theft via cross-site scripting, but it doesn't prevent cross-site tracing or cross-site request forgery, two issues we won't get into but which remain a concern. Cookies consist of three components, name, value, and attributes. Name is used to identify cookies and what they're used for. Value is where your unique ID is stored for tracking purposes. The ID is usually a seemingly random string of numbers and digits, but it's not always random, and it may contain coded information. Attributes are the characteristics of the cookie. These may include, as we've mentioned, expiration date, host only or not, HTTPS only, etc. Before continuing our exploration of cookies, let's talk about metadata. First, what is it? Metadata is everything except the actual content of a specific communication. Like what, you say? Well, when you sent an email, but not the email's content. Who you called, but not the actual conversation. Where you were at when you made the call, what time you called, and how long the conversation lasted. Who you called next. See what I mean? All the information about your communication, but not the communication itself. Why is metadata interesting and potentially dangerous? Because the contextual information about communication can often enable us to infer the actual content without having access to it. Historically, metadata has almost no privacy protection under the law, including in the U.S., especially compared to the protection provided for the content of communications itself, which is also routinely collected in violation of existing laws. But that's another episode. How do you feel about the following scenarios? Think the metadata is as sensitive as the primary content itself? Consider, someone receives an email from an HIV testing service, places a call to their doctor, and then visits an HIV support group website within a one-hour time frame. The actual contents of the email and the audio of the phone conversation are protected. Someone calls a suicide prevention line from the top of the Golden Gate Bridge at 1.30 a.m., but the content of the conversation is protected. Someone receives an email from a gynecology group, places a call to that office, talks for 20 minutes, visits WebMD.com and then asks their Google Home device for the address of the local Planned Parenthood office. All of this specific communication is protected by privacy laws. An exchange student living with a Chinese Uyghur makes a bank transfer to a Swedish bank. An immigrant from Beirut visits Grand Central Terminal, the New York Stock Exchange, and the Port Authority bus terminal in the same day, as evidenced by the GPS on his Android phone. 
Google is, at least potentially and often certainly, in possession of every bit of the above data, potentially including the primary content of the phone conversations and the content of the emails. I hope you're a bit upset about what might be inferred from that data, data that could also be taken from your browser or mobile device by a hacker. So it's not just a matter of whether you feel Google is trustworthy, but how many of you have considered what might be falsely inferred from that same metadata? What if the HIV-related email was sent to the parent of a 17-year-old minor? What if the phone call from the top of the Golden Gate Bridge was made by a good Samaritan standing next to the person threatening to jump? What if the immigrant from Beirut was in New York City for their naturalization ceremony and was simply seeing the sights of their new country? Metadata is dangerous, both because of what may be revealed and because of what may be falsely inferred. Hopefully by now we all have a solid grasp on the fact that metadata is super important and potentially explosive information. So now let's return to the topic of browser cookies, repositories for metadata that reside on every one of our browsers. Just how pervasive is this? Cookies are used to personalize content. What does that tell you? To personalize ads, to provide social media features, and to analyze traffic. Websites and or organizations share information about your use of their site with social media, advertising, and analytics partners, who may combine it with other information that you've provided to them or that they've collected from your use of their service and or services. Let's consider this in more detail, more specific detail. The New York Post put 332 cookies on my computer from a single visit. Only 27 of those 300 came from the post itself, and of those 27, only two were session cookies, cookies that would persist only for the duration of my visit, in other words. Ten of the 27 from the New York Post were host-only, meaning the other 17 cookies could be read by websites other than nypost.com. 305 cookies were from third-party organizations. The New York Times, by contrast, left only 70 cookies in my browser, 17 of which originated with them. All of these cookies had expiration dates in 2020, meaning they will provide information to other websites I visit over at least the next 12 months. Money.com dropped 275 cookies. The Institute of Physics? 28 cookies. The Washington Post? Ironically, via a web page about Google's cookie tracking problem, dropped 65 cookies. BoiseStartup.com left only four cookies. Three of the four were host-only, secure, and expire in one day. That's pretty impressive. The last of the four, however, provides some sort of page functionality, is provided by a third party, expires in 2021, and is stored, rather than a session cookie, it's not host-only, and it's not secure. All told, when I checked my browser after roughly a month of surfing, it contained 4,636 cookies from a total of 1,394 domains. Only a handful of those are domains I've intentionally visited. Now, while the accumulation of cookies is not potentially dangerous to my computer, they can't hide a virus, for example, the danger to my privacy is extensive and the consequent danger to my cybersecurity is significant. 
Remember back in 2018 when the exposed database of consumer marketing firm Exactus was discovered? Exactus, Latin for Finnish, hey, irony, claims to have more than 3.5 billion records that are updated on a monthly basis. How do you think they obtained that data on consumers and our web activity? Exactus stored 400 characteristics on each individual. And while it does not include credit card or social security numbers, that's more than enough information to recreate the answers to almost any security questions. Are you awake yet? As it has become increasingly apparent that the last four digits of a social security number and other information is readily available, companies have increasingly moved toward user-specific data like when a bank asks you, what was the amount of your most recent deposit? Are you with me? Okay, imagine this scenario. You call an electronic retailer and in order to confirm your identity, they ask, what did you buy from us in September? Now, if I have access to your browser cookies, I know the answer to that question. Or, at worst, a likely answer to that question. It may seem to you that the challenge of cookies is so ubiquitous that nothing can be done to combat the issue. That, however, is not the case. True, some experimenting to determine how to get your browser to function as desired is going to be required, but it's worth the challenge. So, what can you do? First, every browser that I can think of includes a function which enables sending a request asking each website you visit not to track your traffic. It's called the Do Not Track setting. Whether that site which you visit complies with your request is entirely up to them, however, and the ones we're most desirous of not being tracked by are also the most likely to disregard your request. So while it is recommended that you use this setting, it's most certainly not a comprehensive fix. Many advertisers or websites also offer individual do-not-tracking settings. Twitter is one such example, where you can go to personalization and data settings to very specifically control what is monitored and tracked or not. Fortunately for us, there's a universal enable or disable slide button. Just go right ahead and disable the entire thing. You can also go to the NAI Consumer Opt-Out page. I'll put the link in the show notes. An opt-out of tracking via advertisers that use tracking cookies in a mass opt-out. This significantly simplifies the process. Once again, this is based on the various participants honoring your request, so don't put your wholesale faith in this approach. You can manually clear your browser of all cookies on a routine basis. You can even set your browser to clear cookies every time you close the browser. Fortunately, you can also whitelist specific cookies that you don't mind letting stick around, so as to not completely uncustomize your browsing experience on various sites you regularly use. Utilize this approach with caution, however, and make sure that you're whitelisting only first-party cookies. This would not, of course, take care of zombie cookies, which recreate themselves upon deletion, but it's a significant step in the right direction. Getting more serious, we turn to Privacy Badger, a browser extension we mentioned briefly in an earlier episode. Privacy Badger is designed by the Electronic Frontier Foundation, and it automatically blocks advertisers who use tracking cookies from loading any additional content into your browser. Privacy Badger works by keeping track of third-party domains, 
who embed images, scripts, and advertising into the pages that you visit. Rather than using a blacklist approach, which would need to be constantly updated, it does this by observing the behavior of third-party domain cookies and blocking them if they collect unique identifiers. We've not mentioned this option before, and if you really want the full value, it is a paid resource. But you should at least check out disconnect.me. This privacy tool automatically detects when your browser connects to anything other than the site you're visiting. It then categorizes those requests and blocks them, except for requests that are necessary for the actual content and or functionality of the site. You can then choose to allow through other categories like analytics, advertising, and social media on an as-needed basis. Or you can even allow trackers through individually. This is a great tool, even if only just for learning the mechanics of how this stuff works, what each website is doing, etc. Perhaps you can use it temporarily during a learning period, if nothing else. There is a basic functionality version, but it is significantly limited. If you've stuck with me all the way through this, all I can say is thank you. I seriously appreciate it, and I hope your browsing experience is improved in both speed and safety. Join us next time for Episode 6, Safely Using the Cloud.